about build an environment of pursuing curiosity. You know who you are, who you really are. Like <laughs> you are listening to Everyday Educators on 1921 Radio. Everyday Educators, and we educate every day. Good morning, loved ones. We got something very special to you. So we're trying out something new. So what you're going to hear basically is two mini-sodes. You know, me and they are always, you know, working through things, trying to bring you all new and exciting content. But also we're just, you know, learning the space. So we want you all to sit back and listen. You're going to hear basically like two different parts. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, watching two different parts. And please give us your feedback. Let us know. And here goes the show. Peace. Welcome, 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 loved ones. This is the Everyday Educators Podcast, and I am your host, Jeremy, and I'd like to welcome you back. Nay, what's up? What's up? We missed you last week. Oh, thanks. But uh, for everyone who's listening, make sure you please go back after you finish this one. We had a dynamic video with uh, Miss L. Davis from the Elevate Group. Um and it's now on YouTube where you can find our new episodes dropping every Saturday. Um, you can also catch us on wherever you find your podcast. But as always, if you are a radio listener, please check us out on 1921radio.com. So we're doing something very special today. We don't have an actual factor for you guys, but we're doing something new. So, as you know, our platform is here to provide information, but we also strive to provide inspiration, right? And that is from our current as well as our past educators. So, in that spirit, we have a new segment called an educator's spotlight, where we will um, talk to you about a former educator and maybe some contemporary ones as well and today we will be discussing none other than the man the myth the legend himself someone who many of my personal and educational philosophies are based in mr edward excuse me william edward burhart i looked it up that is how you pronounce it w-e-b du bois So, Nay. Yes. What you know about Du Bois? I know that he is the father of the talented 10. Mm -hmm. The idea that you teach to the top 10% of the Black population and those people would get us through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that he was an alpha man. Mm-hmm. And he was a teacher. Very mm-hmm. much. And most of that stuff we're not going to cover <laughs> in this episode. Um, we are going to focus, of course, his education passed, uh, but we're definitely going to focus on him as an educator. So like all of our other interviews, we're going to talk about his educational journey and then his life as a professional educator. So let's hop on to it. Transition music. (laughs) 
it's weird because like like now that's how my mind is like as I'm <laughs> framing like all right here's where we're gonna put the little transition <clears throat> so i want to make note that this information comes from two books w.e.b du bois biography of a race 1868 to 1919 and W.B. Du Bois, The Fight for Equality in the American Century, 1919 to 1963. And both of these books are authored by David Levering Lewis. So um, if you want to learn more about Du Bois, and it is a lot more than what's in this episode, please, I encourage you to read those books. They're uh, a great read. So, Du Bois was born on Church Street in Great Barrington, Massachusetts on a Sunday, February 23rd, 1868. And he was born to Alfred Du Bois and Mary Sylvina Burhart. Now, growing up, Du Bois would correct those who pronounce his surname. So I got to ask you, Nay, with the last name of Palacios, when you were growing up, what were some of the mispronunciations you came across? So many, really. But what always like surprises me is that people always put a U in my name, and that's not how it's spelled. It's so like C I O U S. Ah, okay. I don't. Every single time, no matter what, it's like how. I don't know, but yeah. Mm. Yes, I. Uh, I remember everyone like you know uh, Stephen Colbert mm-hmm. instead of like Colbert everyone like growing up they'd be like oh it's Rimbert I'm like nah bruh it's Rimbert so I uh, resonate well we both do with Brother Du Bois you know on his mother's side the Burhards are descendants from West Africa via Dutch slavers hence the name and on his daddy's side he has French origins. Now his grandfather, Grandfather Du Bois, went down to Haiti, had some uh, extramarital affairs, if you will, which led to the birth of his father. And his dad, Alfred, was a rolling stone. And thus he was raised by his mother all alone in Massachusetts. Now, lucky for Du Bois, two years before he was born, the town had invested in a public school now, before this, only the wealthy families had access to private schools. Who knew? I didn't know that public schools, like, are that old. Yeah, yeah. Some even older than that. Um, maybe we should do a, the history yeah. of, of public education. See? See how these things yes. come together? Now, Du Bois was the first member of his family to finish elementary and high school. And during his uh, high school years is when he first became a published writer in a local newspaper. Now, much later, he would build on this by becoming editor-in-chief of The Crisis. Do you know what The Crisis is, Nay? I don't. That was the publication arm of the NAACP. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, do you know how many students graduated with Du Bois from high school? 15. Close. 
He was uh, one of 13 students who graduated, only two of which were heading to college. Now, although he wanted to go to Harvard, he couldn't afford the tuition. So in September of 1885, he arrived at Fisk Free Colored School, we now refer to as Fisk University, entering at the sophomore, excuse me, entering at the age of 17 as a sophomore because of his, quote, superior Northern secondary education. Now, here go a little trivia for you, Nay. As of today, how many HBCUs are there? I'm just going to go ahead and say like 50. Hmm. Well, you'll be glad to know it's 107. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I know there's some debate on this question. I remember going on a college tour and three schools said they were the first. But what is the first HBCU meaning the first school of higher education established for black people. What, uh, what was the first one? Oh. Okay, any of you don't know the name of it, guess what state it is in. Mississippi. Okay. So according to HBCUfirst.com and a bunch of other places, Cheney University in Pennsylvania was the first HBCU established in 1837. But I will note that Lincoln University. I love Lincoln. Was the first school to offer, I think, like a bachelor's degree. So it was like some that mm. is where like that that beef comes from. So not many records survived from Du Bois' time at Fisk that kind of talked to what kind of student he was, but one of his professors wrote to the Harvard's admissions committee, quote, if his application should be accepted, I fear that he might give you the impression of being somewhat conceited, unquote. So if nothing else, Du Bois obviously thought very highly of himself. Now... The most important thing that happened at Fisk in Du Bois's professional life was that he became a teacher. During his summers, he would work in Alexandria, Tennessee, and at the age of 18 years old, he received his teacher's license to teach first grade. Beautiful. Uh And that summer, he began making $28 a month. Now, how much money is $28 in 2023? Isn't that like $800 a month? Eight or $900? Yep, yep. It's $886 today. So he was getting that, which uh, would help pay his tuition. So he would work there uh, every summer during his time at Fisk. And in June of 1888, Du Bois was one of five graduating seniors that being two men and three women. So shout out to the women um, that, uh, that graduated from Fisk. And in the fall of 88, he arrived at Harvard University. This is what Du Bois had to say of his time at Harvard. Quote, he did not find better teachers at Harvard, but teachers better known than at Fisk, unquote. 
And here's a fun fact. The tuition at Harvard was only $500 a year. Who knew? Wow. That's like that's like fifteen thousand dollars then. Yeah. So like the growth of college tuition has I mean, been yeah, exactly. It has grown exponentially. And my condolences to everyone out there who has to start back paying that uh student loan. Mm-hmm. My prayers are with you. <laughs> Even though I saw Joey was, you know, thinking about providing some more relief for folks, so Fingers crossed for everybody out here. We feel your pain here at Everyday Educators. So Du Bois graduated cum laude at, on June 25th, 1890 with a concentration, excuse me, with a bachelor's degree and a concentration in philosophy. Now the following year in 91, Du Bois became the first African-American to graduate from Harvard with a doctorate degree and his degree was in history. Now, do you know why he has two bachelor's degree name. I think, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. Harvard did not honor a bachelor's degree that came from an HBCU, so he yes. had to take and get another one. Mm-hmm. So at the time, if you went to an Ivy League school and you came in with a degree that wasn't from an Ivy League school. They felt as uh, you didn't have a rigorous education. So you had to get another degree, which is why he has a second bachelor's. Um, So the following year, he received a scholarship from the Slater Fund to attend Frederick Wilhelm University in Berlin, Germany. After two years, the fund wouldn't support Du Bois' pursuit of a second doctorate. Now he tried to graduate early, but the objection of one hating chemistry teacher and his lack of money to fund his own degree, he wasn't able to complete his second doctorate. Now begins Du Bois' life as a college professor. Two years after uh, he left Germany, we find him back in America and working as a professor at Wilberforce University in Ohio. Shout out to Wilberforce. And how much do you think he earned that first year? I know you know the answer. $1,000. Close. He earned $800 a year. Now, he wasn't enthused at all at being in Ohio or at Wilberforce, and he would soon leave for a more fulfilling opportunity. However, he made a powerful acquaintance at his time there in Ohio by meeting a brother by the name of Alexander Crumel. Now name, do you know who Brother Crumel is? I don't. So he was a minister. He was a graduate of Cambridge, excuse me, of Queens College in Cambridge. He was also a professor at Howard University at the time. And he was a missionary in Liberia. Wow. So he did a lot. Like the resume. Very much so. Very much so. So Crumel emphasized uh, the African-Americans' responsibility to the people of Africa. And meeting Crumel began shaping Du Bois' pan-Africanist beliefs, which would be evident in many of his uh, research and his writings. Now, along with Crumel, two other people entered Du Bois' life at Wilberforce. Du Bois would meet a woman with, quote, 
lustrous black hair, large, lovely, trusting eyes, and an hourglass figure. All right now, unquote. By the name of Nina Gomer, who would become his wife later on. And she was also one of his students. So ethics laws were a little different back then, but you know, shout out to them. He will also begin corresponding with a, another scholar by the name of Booker T. Washington. I don't know. Maybe one day we should do a, a, one of these episodes on Booker T. We have to. You can't give the people one half of the story. <laughs> well, we're not going to get into all the beef right now, but we might touch on it if we follow up with Booker T. Just so that for context, you know, for those youngins who may not know the importance of these two brothers. Now, <clears throat> three weeks after his marriage to Nina in 1896, Du Bois has accepted a position at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia for how much now? He was making 800. How much are you making now? 1600. Close, but not close. 900. So he still mm-hmm. haven't cracked it. He ain't cracked that thousand yet, but you know. I wonder if that was like 100K back then. You know how like people historically, <laughs> like once you hit that six figure mark, mm. on, I wonder if like getting to a thousand dollars back then was like <laughs> a, a big deal. Listen, I can imagine like walking down the streets of Philadelphia and you see your brother, like you see a man in 4K, like, man, you know, this dude, he made four figures, bro. He a four figure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Look at Du Bois. All right. So at his, at the university of Pennsylvania, Du Bois will produce a series of papers studying the African-Americans in the seventh ward of Philadelphia titled the Philadelphia Negro. Do you know anything about these papers? I don't. I'm learning a lot. This is very important for, for you and for all of our listeners. So the Philadelphia Negro is the first, and I'm reading this uh, uh, from the book, the first sociological and academic comprehensive examination of black life, including migration, religion, crime, family, health, and education. Simply put, this is the first time a university study black people from the, perspe- from the perspective of a black person. Wow. Now, Du Bois went door to door and spent over 835 hours interviewing the entire population of the seventh ward. That is nearly 10,000 men, women, and children. Even uh, missed the birth of his son because of this. And in August of, uh, excuse me, 1897, I keep wanting to say 19. Oh, that was so long ago. <laughs> and in August of 1897, Du Bois accepted a position at Atlanta University for how much, Nay? 2000. You were very generous. I don't know if you would be. Uh, able to be a chancellor when his university fiscally mm-hmm. irresponsible <laughs> so uh one thousand dollars one thousand dollars oh so he did get that oh yeah he a four figure now four figures now his primary responsibility at au was to continue his research papers and he facilitated the atlanta conference 
of Negro Problems, which is a uh, series of both papers and con- uh, excuse uh, papers and like conference meetings. Um, doing this sociological study on black folks, but just in the Atlanta area. Well, Georgia specifically. So Du Bois will continue this work until 1910 when he left Atlanta University and he and many others will begin an organization titled the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Yes, the infamous world-renowned NAACP. Now, he will later return uh, to Atlanta University as the head of the sociology department and from 1934 to 1944, where he would leave again. Du Bois and the American government had a, what we would call today a toxic relationship. And he would later leave America in 1961 to become a citizen of Ghana. At the age of 95, Du Bois would pass away in his sleep the night before the March on Washington in 1963. A woman at the march was crying in the crowd and is quoted saying, it's like Moses. God had written that he should never enter the promised land. And that is a story of William Edward Burhart Du Bois. You did so good. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Now, uh, in our time left, I, I want to just kind of have your thoughts on on his story. What did you think about Du Bois? It was good. I learned a lot. Things that I, I didn't know or like refreshed my memory about mm-hmm. his life as an educator. For example, I had no idea he had been a first grade teacher. I thought he obviously like went to school and like started like writing books in the NAACP and all that stuff. I had no idea that that journey started way before that. So that was cool to learn. Yeah. Hello. Got it. Um, So for me, I, uh, of course I resonate a lot with him. Um, For those of you who do not know, I, I got a daddy, so that's not the point. But I do have three additional metaphor, metaphorical fathers, Paul Robeson, Samuel Jackson, and W.B. Du Bois. And so, like, I've read his dissertation from Harvard um, and many of his, you know, books and and, and autobiographies and, and memoirs and stuff. But um, it was so much that... I learned from doing this research one when he was talking about his educational philosophy and I would love to kind of go into that more on another episode but it wasn't lost on me the kind of parallels of what was happening in the late 1800s and like what is happening today. Mm-hmm. And so like one question I wanted to ask, uh, Nay, because you work at a, a different type of institution than like I'm used to working with. Um, are there many two parent households 
two parent families like at uh at your school? Um from I don't have numbers, but from what I can gauge, yes. Mm-hmm. That's not exclusive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's not to say like we don't have different um makeups of families. No doubt. But yeah. generally speaking from what I know, yes. Mm-hmm. And 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 the reason why I bring that up because I was reading in a well, I guess maybe we will we will have an actual factual <laughs> kind of sorta. Of. So I was reading a Times magazine article that came out a couple of days ago and it was talking like on the impact of single parent households um on like students. Well, it was the general impact, but of course they highlighted like how that affected um, students' achievements in school, right? Mm-hmm. And Du Bois uh, really, I, f- I felt a deeper connection with him reading his story because, you know, obviously there was a lot that I left out. So he does have an older brother. And his older brother wasn't able to go to school like past you know, a couple of years in elementary school because his dad left. His mom was mentally ill, excuse me, physically, had a physical ailment, excuse me, not mentally ill, but had physical ailments because she got injured while working. And a bunch of his like aunts and uncles, grandfathers died and they moved out of their house. They lost a lot of their wealth. So his brother had to work, right? So he couldn't finish school. Like I said, his mother was, um, you know, disabled. So she couldn't really um, work either. And he had every reason not to be successful, right? Um, He almost got sent to prison because somebody accused him of, like, stealing. So, like, all these... The brother? No, uh, the boys. The boys. Yeah, I'm looking at Du Bois. I'm looking at this man who was the first black man, black person to graduate from Harvard. And he studied all around the world. Um, He did all these amazing things, but he had so many challenges that like many of my homies had, you know, some of these challenges that I have. And I just draw a lot of inspiration, you know, from his story to be like, man, if this dude could do it, he was two years removed from slavery. I mean, it was me, two generations removed from slavery. Like, you know, we could do it today. So I just wanted, you know, people to, who are listening, um, who are learning about Du Bois to just reflect, you know? Amen. Amen. To everyone listening, we want to say thank you. Um, thank you for going on this journey with us. Thank you for allowing us to try something new, to bring you new segments, new formats. And please let us know what you think. Let us know what you learned. Um, every good educator knows that feedback is very, very, very important. And so we're the Everyday Educators Podcast. And here is where we educate every day. You can catch us every Saturday. At many places, right? As always on 1921radio.com. But now you can catch us on YouTube. 
You can also catch us wherever you watch your or listen to your podcast, rather. And you can find us at Everyday Educators. And do not forget the S. Please pull us up, like, and subscribe. I am recording a show. I'm recording my podcast. Right. See, I'm a real podcaster, y'all. It's yours. <laughs> I, we all are here for you. Now, now I know how Joe Butter feels. Like, so, like I was saying, we everyday educators. You can catch us everywhere at Everyday Educators. Please don't forget the S. Like and subscribe. If you are on the Spell app, we are at Educate Every Day. And you can email us at info at educateeveryday.com. Until next time, keep teaching, keep learning, and keep loving, y'all. Peace. What's going on, loved ones? Welcome back. This is the Everyday Educators Podcast. I am your host, Jeremy, and as always, the beautiful Naomi. What's going on, Nay? How are you? I'm good. How are you? You know, I'm still black, so you know that's a blessed thing. Amen. All right. So, people, we are going to try something new today on what we are calling a mini-sode. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but we're going to basically uh, discuss some topics. It'll be a shorter form video, and we'll see, you know, how you like it. How's that sound, Nay? Sounds good. Cool, cool, cool. So, um, no actual factuals with this one, but I do just kind of want to have a brief little check-in. So how was your weekend? How'd it go? It was fine. I don't have any complaints. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, Beautiful. How was yours? Uh, well, glad you asked. Um, in celebration of the 50th year of hip hop, you know, some of our greatest acts are on tour. Um, someone, one group in particular that, you know, your husband and I have a lot of love for Wu-Tang, right? Uh, they were here with Nas and it was a phenomenal show. I mean, a beautiful, beautiful show. So, you know, that's amazing. you know what? I was supposed to see Anita Baker this weekend and she canceled both this year. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I was sad. I'm sorry you had to go through that. (laughs) I know how much you love Anita Baker. Um, So, for today, I, I was thinking about like, what could we do to, you know, really help the folks out there at this time of year, right? Uh, Depending on where you are, in the country, you know, report card pickup is soon approaching, right? And uh, many of our families, you know, they may be uh, new to a school, 
You know, this might even be your first time going to a port car pickup, independent of, you know, what grade your kid is in. <laughs> and uh, I figured our beautiful admissions uh, expert would be able to, you know, just kind of give folks out there some ideas of a few questions that they might be able to ask, uh, you know, as conversation starters, you know, for their kids. So, nay. In that spirit, um, why don't you share us with us, you know, a few things for the people? Um, I have a lot here, so let me see. Um, a good one is that we talk about often are like learning styles and differentiating in the classroom. So one question that you could possibly ask is, can you provide insight into my child's learning style and how can it and how is it accommodated in the classroom? You can go even a bit further and ask like how you can support that learning style at home, whether your child is a visual learner or auditory learner. Um, it's important that you know that so that you can support them moving forward. And it's important that the teacher knows that. So um, I think that question shows your interest is not like showing up and sitting down like hey tell me how my kid is doing it shows that you are an active participant in this process and making sure that your child is successful in the classroom and to add on to that right um i think that it is just as important for families who have older children right those middle schoolers and those high schoolers for them to ask, you know, the different teachers that, right? Because they might learn math, they might learn French in a, in a different style than they learn reading. Um, and if you are more primary, it'll be like, you know, all a, a little more inclusive classroom. Um, with less teachers and they, you know, it's a lot more bleed over than if once they um, get into more specialized class as they advance. So just want to add that piece. Great question. Eh? What else you got? Um, another one is what events do you have coming up that I should be aware of or I should make sure that I attend? Most parents are working all parents are very busy, whether you are working or not. And so when you meet with the teacher, having an idea of like, oh, in November, it is their Thanksgiving program. And that's a really big deal. All the parents come or you, whatever it is, it can be a number of things, but just making sure that you have like those big important dates on the calendar. Mm -hmm. I was, yeah, they send home the the memo and all that stuff. But again, like being proactive, making sure that you know those things so you can plan ahead and hopefully be there to support your little one. You know, I, uh, I don't have any children, but I like fake raised my brother. And, you know, we five years difference. And I was amazed on like how much information never made it home, you know? And so like, this is why they have like an asterisk on the calendar and the syllabus because when things get updated, right? And there's, you know, 
I don't want to say leaflets. I'm showing my age because everything is like mostly digital, but everything don't make it to your door, right? And you may not have checked that email or it might have gone to your spam folder or what have you. But, you know, just making sure that, like Nate said, you are being proactive um, and that makes it uh, easier for, you know, those educators to, you know, kind of include you keep you like top of mind when they're making sure that they you know touch all the families for whatever updates that need to go out so good so thanks Nate for that uh those first awesome tips so tip number three what you got um I had a second uh, like a part two to my second tip. Okay, go for it. Also wanted to point out like make sure you ask your school, which they should have done this in the beginning, but if they didn't or you missed it, like make sure you ask them about whatever digital platforms they use or they offer. Um, Because a lot of times schools will use that where you can see the calendar, you can see homework, you can see like all the things that as a parent you need to see. So if you haven't done that already, just make sure you double check so you don't miss anything. Yo, just to add on to that, not that um, this is new information, but it's something that I've come across as a co-parent, you know, for, for our godson. Make sure you write down your password because it's not always the easiest to get the person at the school who's in charge of like managing the passwords for the parents and all that. And sometimes they don't even have a person depending on how big your school is. Like they have to, like you are dealing with a third party. So Mm -hmm. that's to all you power school users out there, classroom dojo users out there, you know, you know my pain. So (laughs) just write down your password. All right. Tip number three. Um, this question is are there any areas where my child seems particularly engaged or disengaged in the classroom and the follow-up to that is like how can i support so if your kid like i hated math i you just you can pay me to to care about math in any grade and so i as a personal example like the no, my mom knew what to ask for, what to kind of like probe about to kind of get me through at minimum. Um, and so I encourage families to do that. It's like, hey, your kid doesn't really seem engaged when we're working on math facts or whatever the case may be. Like a follow-up question to that is like, what can I do? How can I get them engaged in this particular subject? I know from an anecdotal perspective, the math, the sciences can be difficult because sometimes children don't see them in the world. Mm-hmm. So like the more you can point out like measuring stuff when we're baking cookies is a form of math and also a form of science. I guess you could say like no, it where is. they can see those examples. Yeah, mm-hmm. where they can see those examples like that can help with engagement. And then when they are engaged um, in certain subjects, mm-hmm. how can I maintain that? How can I challenge them yeah. that and making sure that they continue to, to stay engaged in those subjects? You know what? I want to I wanna let this one breathe for a little minute because I want to uh, have a come to Jesus moment. I, if all of our educators just come to the front of the congregation right now. 
So we understand that, um, you know, we're all humans. We're all people. We're doing the best that, that we can. But for you parents, please know that teachers are people too. And in saying that, um, yes, this is an opportunity for, you know, you to support the educators and as we all kind of work towards the um, actualization of your child's potential. But also, this is a great vetting question or an accountability question because you know your child. You know your child, and use Nay's example, you know you ain't seen no science homework all year long so far, right? You know they're in fourth grade, you know they're in fifth grade, and somebody should be doing somebody's science, and you ain't seen it, right? And if you're talking to a teacher or their teachers, and no one has, like, any points of improvement, or if it's things that you know that should be going on, and like you weren't seeing it, this is an opportunity for you to address some of those things. And in a non, uh, I, don't, I don't know the right conjugation of the word, but without accusing them, without pointing fingers, but like, hey, you kind of ask this leading question. If they don't have anything substantive, then you could then kind of continue that conversation and be like, hey, I haven't seen much science because it might just be something that you just not privy to and we hope that's the case but if it's uh, a gap in like their services or something then here's an opportunity for you to address that in a more corrective manner right so right. everybody can go back to their pews now thank you <laughs> <laughs> alright so that was three right let's, yes. keep, let's keep this thing going alright tip number four where we at um, my recommendation would be to ask about what measures are in place for a safe learning environment for different families. That means different things, but for whatever that means to you, mm -hmm. make sure that you ask that. Make sure you know those things. Like, mm. my kid is kind of quiet. I am like, what measures are in place to ensure that like they come out of their shell or they are making friends like that type of so or like they're kind of quiet and they're uncomfortable with like speaking in front of the classroom like do you have any strategies to like help them get past that or, or you know manage that during this time until they can get to a point where they feel comfortable speaking in front of the class like this is these are all examples but I would certainly say make sure you ask those questions because you want your babies to be safe and comfortable and feeling good at school mm -hmm. um you don't want them to have uh, stress. And oh, for sure. Safety is a paramount, but it's not just physical safety, right? It's that emotional and and spiritual, you know, safe haven. And so all that is important. Thanks, Nate, for that one. And for let's make this a let's make this a, a good one for the folks listening at home. What is the fifth and final question parents should be asking? their teachers for the first parent-teacher conference of the year. How does the school handle tracking assessments? Mm. And how is that communicated? Okay. Different schools do different things. And post-pandemic, a lot of schools are not interested in testing. Some of them still are. Mm -hmm. 
Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of information out about both sides of that. Whatever it is, just make sure you are clear about how they track progress, how they use those assessments, if they are using them, and what that means for your kid. Does that mean like, oh, the, if they didn't pass the test, now they fail the grade? Most places don't fail kids anymore in that same way, but like, if they do, you should know. So. Yo, I just seen an Instagram post about that. I might have shared it with you. And we can kind of get on to people not being failing folks anymore. Um, but to your point about this question, the assessments have changed, y'all. For those of you who are listening who, you know, was in high school 30 years ago, who was in fifth grade <laughs> 35, 40 years ago, the assessments have changed. There's new math out here. There's new tests out here. And it looks different than like when you were in school. So just like, you know, we're all working to, together to educate your children. you got to educate yourself and kind of knowing what these assessments are, what exactly they are testing for in order for your child to be successful, because these are the ways in which other educators and other institutions are communicating about your child, right? And so for you to best prepare them and for us to, you know, kind of support you and, you know, raising up this child, as I mentioned, we all need to be on the same page and share language and all that good stuff. So, yeah. I mean, a, a good example is, I don't, I can't remember. I think I sent it to you over the weekend. It was about reading comprehension and how in certain mm. states kids were failing reading and they're like fourth, fifth grade and they can't read on that level. And yeah. what came out of that was the schools were not, the schools in these particular states were not teaching phonics anymore. They had moved on to a different curriculum, yeah. which um, fostered a lot of gaps because it built a love for reading. I don't know what the is called and maybe I wouldn't mention it because I don't want to bash it but they were fostering a love for reading and like exploratory reading is what they called it but students were leaning on pictures mm. and so yeah. all books don't have pictures as you get older like articles don't have pictures if you're trying to get through um, articles or chapter books or whatever yeah. and so Ultimately, what happened was that they found out that they were not learning phonics. They were not learning essentially like the science of reading, like what sounds that letters make, how to blend those sounds together, how to sound out words. And so just know, just be aware of those things is what I'm trying to say. Like if you are going to the parent teacher conference, if your child is in that age bracket, how are you teaching reading? What does that mean? What does that look like? Because these are things that families have to be aware of. So. Big facts. That's my soapbox. And a bonus tip. I know, like, when I was growing up, it was seen as, like, you know, negative. But Hooked on Phonics works for me. Call A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Like, the basics still work. So get into them. Hooked on Phonics was considered a negative? What? Like, listen, where I'm from. If, if you was on hooked on finance, like that was like a negative thing. But we all should have been, as we see now, shorties who aren't hooked on phonics 
<laughs> you know, are, are deficient, right? So who knew? I guess you knew. I didn't know it was. I mean, now listen, we could have been wrong. I'm not saying we was right, but it was seen as you weren't doing well enough, so you needed extra support. Which oh, among the kids, among the kids, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying oh, that you was a shorty, okay, like. Okay. You know, like, dang, you know, homie was hooked on phonics. Like, that was, like, a negative term. When really it was like, (laughs) my parents care about me reading at or above grade level. So, but, you know, you know how I feel about everybody under 25. So, what am I going to do, right? Um, So, yeah, this is the mini-sode, right? Um, Please, when you check us out on YouTube, when you check us out on your podcast, Get active. Let us know what you think. And we'll see y'all next time. Peace.